Excerpts from Sir Fairchild's journals. Day, four. What a trip. If the lack of intellectual conversation wasn't enough to bear, the crew's total disregard for manners was irreprehensible. I gladly welcomed the chance to get back on solid ground again as we docked at Istanbul. It's the perfect country in which to start my research. Once off the boat, I was taken back by a land so rich in history and perfectly located between Europe and Asia. I should definitely find what I need here. Later as my crew and I made our way to Stambal, I was amazed by the remains of a four-mile 7th century wall ranging from the Sea of Marmara to the Golden Horn. But being amazed by historical sites weren't enough. I needed to get into the minds of the natives, whom, I must say, didn't trust me since I was a Muslim. It seems as though everyone in this country were Muslims. After getting absolutely nowhere, a few started to warm up to me. They told me of how proud they were to be descendants of the Hittites and the marvelous Ottoman Empire of old. I argued not with their history, but encouraged them to speak more of it to open them up. They told me this land wasn't always called Turkey, but was known as Asia Minor. This I know, but I'll include this for the sake of keeping fine records. One of the residents who opened up to me was a history teacher. What a find. I soon learned the Hittites ruled a powerful civilization rivaling that of the Egyptians and Babylonians around 2000 BC. The Hittites fell to the Assyrians in 12th century BC and then to the Greeks in 8th century BC. Eventually, in the 2nd century, Rome conquered Asia Minor and in the Middle Ages was the center of Christianity as part of the Byzantine Empire. I find it amazing that a country once so strong in Christianity became dominantly Muslim. This part of their history wasn't a proud one to them. Less time was spent talking about that. But the teacher was excited as he told me about the 15th century Ottoman Turks conquering the land, giving rise to Istanbul. He also took me close to the Tipkani Palace, home of the Ottoman Sultans. Eventually, I was asked why I came to their country. They were wondering if I was seeking a new faith, their faith. I regretfully told them no, since I was a seeker of the truth, a seeker of historical truths. At this, they smiled and told me I was indeed seeking their faith, for their faith was the truth. Well, what can I say if I told them otherwise? Then, there goes my source of information. My goodness, this area has much history. From the Hittites to the Assyrians, from the Assyrians to the Greeks, from the Greeks to the Romans, and from the Romans to the Ottoman Empire. Hittites. Why does that name make me wonder? Anyway, my crew and I, along with a couple of guides, devoting their time to help me see the truth, took an arduous trip to Ankara, the capital of Turkey. Again, the levels of archaeological and historical sites amazed me, while the mixture of old and new astonished me. Just outside the city, there were several excavation sites. I visited one controlled by a fellow Englishman, Sir Reginald Gray, no relation to the famous Earl. The man was rather narrow in his views. He claimed to have discovered proof of early Stone Age man living in Turkey. He went as far to say that Turkey was the site where man first evolved. What utter nonsense. Find a few small pots, stone knives, a few skulls, and some pictures on stone, and all of a sudden an intricate pattern is woven. Nonsense. There were too many holes in his theory to take him serious, so I just played along. After nodding and shaking my head when expected and responding verbally in kind, I did get some interesting facts from him. 
He did say when he shared his theory with other archaeologists. They dismissed him rudely. Sir Gray called them barbarians and backward mental midgets because of their disbeliefs in man's evolution and their belief of man originating in Mesopotamia, the area between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. They believed this was where the Garden of Eden was. Well, Sir Gray couldn't stand for ridiculous religious babble when he had unshakable facts right in front of their faces. Little did he know that he and the other archaeologists did agree on one fact. Man did make his first appearance, one way or another, around this area, be it Mesopotamia or Turkey. The evidence is right in front of everyone's eyes, but they fail to see it because of their arrogant pride and their boisterous petty squabbling. My goodness! What other place on the face of the planet holds so many wonders and mysteries than Asia Minor and the Middle East? Look at the facts. The so-called Seven Wonders of the World shouts an affirmation. The Pyramids of Egypt, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the Statue of Zeus at Olympia, the Mausoleum at Halicarnassus, the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus, the Colossus of Rhodes, and the Pharaoh's Lighthouse of Alexandria. They all show great human achievements, and they were all done within a certain area on this planet. A coincidence? I think not. I tire to think of all this. Where is it leading? I did not make this trip to argue man's beginnings. I just want the truth about what I fear. This region has much to offer. I just pray I'm led in the right direction. Chapter The Fall After spending nearly 20 minutes quietly eating breakfast, Sean contemplated what he was getting himself into. By agreeing to the three rules, he felt somehow different, as if he had verbally signed an agreement of servanthood. He also felt less inner conflict within. It was very simple. His primary concern was to preserve his family. At times he would glance at Agent Brown, who was also eating, and be amazed at the level of influence these beings held. His fears slowly dissolved as he considered the opportunities to learn the truth behind mankind's developing civilizations and historical past. These beings knew everything about mankind. There were no mysteries here. In a way, it would be the opportunity of a lifetime. Sean took a deep breath before speaking. Excuse me, but what do these beings call themselves, if I may ask? Agent Brown smiled as he saw how Sean was eagerly accepting the situation. Why? I don't know. Well, um, I guess our kind always have the need to label things as a point of reference. Fine, in our tongue they have no name, but I guess for references' sake, you can call them Manaday Vass. What? It's a combination of old dialects, said Agent Brown. What does it mean? asked John. Agent Brown looked agitated. Look, you wanted a name and got one. Yes, said Sean quickly, looking back at his breakfast. For the next few minutes, the two ate without talking until the dark assassin from the basement came up from downstairs. He looked at the two, smiled at Agent Brown, and wiped his hands as to indicate that everything was taken care of. I'm going to be outside if you need me, he said to Agent Brown. Brown nodded as he watched him leave the room. A door slammed shut as Brown glanced at Sean. Yes, that was a door, and it does lead to the outside world, but please keep in mind, we're far from civilization. We're deep in the countryside and thinking about running one hell. Now, I know you said you've accepted us and will work together with us, but you must understand it'll take some time for us to trust you," said Agent Brown. Sean looked up from his plate. And what must I do to gain your trust? Even as he said the words, he hated himself for saying it. Agent Brown stood up, 
gathered all the dirty dishes, and left the room without saying a word. Sean heard the clatter of dishes being placed in a sink. When Agent Brown returned, he sat directly next to Sean on the couch and smiled. A test of loyalty. Sean didn't like the sound of that, it could mean anything. Like what? We'll get to that soon enough, but keep in mind any failure in completing the test of loyalty forfeits the lives of your wife and children. So I don't really have a choice anyway, do I? Sean thought. What kind of loyalty test is it if I don't have a choice? He wondered if Albert was presented with the test of loyalty and refused to do it. Was this test something he was going to regret? Can I have your attention, please? said Agent Brown. It's quite obvious you have questions, and soon I'll entertain them, but for now listen very carefully. Yes, Sean responded obediently. Now, Agent Brown leaned closer to Sean, smiling. As I told you before, the cause of the Manaday Bass is to create a perfect union between us and them, but there are others that don't want it to happen. They're a very small group of individuals fighting a guerrilla war against us. That's more aggravating than harmful. Nevertheless, they have persistently attacked us at the most inopportune times. Agent Brown stared deeply into Sean's eyes as he continued. Do you understand me? Yes, said Sean robotically. He then quickly shook his head, feeling as though he was beginning to drift off to sleep. Agent Brown continued to stare deep into Sean's eyes. You've rejected your god, he thought, so we can enter you at any time, but for now a simple suggestion and disillusion will do. Sean, this group is composed of people you'd never imagine. They may be doctors, lawyers, homeless people, government officials, religious fanatics, and even teachers. There's no common factor as to what these people do for a living or even how they're recruited, but the fact is they're a thorn in our side we continually strive to purge. Now, with every new person we recruit, we test their loyalty against this group. This is what we require of you. Yes, said Sean mechanically. How dare these people threaten the Manaday Vass? They must be dealt with quickly and decisively, without any remorse whatsoever, he thought. Agent Brown smiled and leaned back. Sean was so easily deceived. Now for the real test of how alone Sean Duquesne really was. Agent Brown produced a picture. Here's a picture of one of the people in this group. She's very dangerous and must be dealt with. We're lucky to have acquired information about her upcoming meeting with someone, but we're going to have you meet her instead. Obtain the package she's holding onto and make sure she'll never be able to harm us again. Do you understand? Yes. Are you sure? Because if there's any doubt, let us know now. Sean took the picture from Agent Brown and stared at the woman's face. How dare she do this to me, he thought. How dare she deceive me for so many years? She knew the truth and tried to destroy it. All along she was having this personal war against the Manaday Bass and was probably using me as a cover. She probably put my family in danger from time to time. How dare she try to harm these innocent beings that only want the best for us. Sean crumpled the picture of his mother and looked angrily at Agent Brown. When? Soon. Be patient, these things take time. Brown paused. Are you prepared to do what you must do? Don't worry, said Sean. And Marie Duquesne will die by my hands for her transgressions. It's like, about time, Burrad finished watching his dumb cartoons so I could use the DVD player. Nicole thought as she inserted the movie. She flopped on the couch, crossed her legs, 
and grabbed the bowl of popcorn, demanding her immediate attention. Her mother was upstairs, Brad was outside playing catch with his friend next door, and she had the living room all to herself. She was all set to enjoy an undisturbed moment watching the latest teenage boy heartthrob movie when the doorbell rang. Nicole ignored the bell. Her movie was playing, and she was definitely too busy to answer it. Her mother wasn't doing anything, she could answer it. Ring. Why does this always happen to me? She thought. I finally get a moment to myself. Like, I'm sitting here all comfortable and then, boom, someone disturbs me. Well, I'm busy. Ring. Nicole, screamed Lisa. Can you see who's at the door? I'm in the bathroom. Mom, I'm busy. I, Nicole. All right, all right, I'll get it. Sheesh. Nicole walked to the door, looked out the peephole, and didn't see anyone. She was about to regard the ring as a practical joke from her brother and his friend when she saw a package in front of the door. Opening the door, she looked around, saw no one, and then grabbed the small package. She went back inside, resumed her position on the couch, and started the movie again. Nicole, who was it? Screamed Lisa from the bathroom. Nobody. Nobody's there, okay. My goodness, can I watch a movie without somebody bothering me? Nicole looked at the package. Duquesne, she mumbled. She opened it since it didn't say which Duquesne. It could have been for her. If it wasn't, then she'd just tell her mother she thought it was. There was a DVD disc inside with the words The Truth About Sean Duquesne written on it. Without hesitation, Nicole stopped her current movie, quickly inserted the DVD, and waited impatiently. When the image of her father appeared on the television, she slid off the couch and crawled closer to the screen. Her father was smiling at the camera as if nothing had happened. He seemed as happy and content as he ever been. Nicole rubbed her eyes. It was her father, alive and well. It was almost too much to believe. Daddy, she said softly. Sean continued to smile as if waiting to be cued. He then winked at the camera and started talking. Hi, honey, it's me, Sean. He shook his head. Of course it is, as you can see. I'm fine and as you already gathered doing well. Sean held up his hand as to hold back any questions. I know you have many questions, and in time I'll try to answer all of them, but for now please listen to me. What are you talking about? Nicole mumbled. I know my disappearance after the ship's unfortunate accident must have upset you and I'm sorry I didn't contact you sooner, but there's a good reason. Yeah, like what? said Nicole becoming angry. Honey, it has come to my attention I have a responsibility to preserve our way of life. What? said Nicole, confused. Nicole? said Lisa coming down the stairs. I don't care for your tone of voice whenever I ask you to. Lisa stared at Nicole looking at her husband on the television and froze. Nicole paused the DVD. It's daddy, he's alive. Someone left this DVDs in front of the door. He's talking about being sorry and protecting our way of life and stuff. It makes no sense. Lisa walked slowly to the television and motioned for her daughter to continue the DVD. Sean continued. At this moment, I can roughly explain why. When the ship had its problems, I tried to get help for you when you lost consciousness. I was later found in the Atlantic, hauled onto a boat, and taken to this hidden facility. It was not my choice in concealing my rescue from the authorities. It was essential for everyone to believe my demise so I'd be free to do what I have to do. The people I now work for believe I'm a unique individual who can greatly help their cause. 
Their influence is global and deeply rooted in nearly every government. Nicole looked at her mother. He's lost it. What's he talking about? Lisa didn't hear her daughter's question as she focused on Sean's face. She wasn't sure at first, but was slowly accepting what she saw. Sean continued, I can't tell you the organization I'm working for, but they've asked me to do something very important, something only I can do. Only after I do this will I be found as having amnesia from the accident and can come back home. Sean leaned closer to the camera. Lisa, tell the kids I love them very much, and I think about all of you constantly. I can't wait to come back home, but what I'm doing is very important, and yes, it can be dangerous too, but I have no choice, it must be done. I owe it to you all, my country, and all mankind." Sean paused and seemed to glance away from the camera. Oh yes, please don't tell anyone, including my mother, that I'm alive. It could undermine my efforts and put me in danger. Honey, I know this doesn't really answer any questions and may even raise more, but just hold on to this, I'm alive and well and will be coming back home soon. They also want me to tell you this DVDs will self-erase in a few seconds. Sean folded his hands together. Lisa, I love you. I know this is hard, but just be strong. I'll be home soon. The DVD stopped, made a funny sound and, totally erased, ejected itself from the machine. Nicole looked at her mother and was about to ask her a question but stopped when she saw the look on her mother's face. Lisa closed her eyes to try to take the image of Sean out of her mind but couldn't. The shadow upon her husband's face didn't lie. He was under the influence of something evil. His eternal soul was in peril of being lost. It was her worst nightmare coming true. Sean, how could you? She thought to herself. How could you fall from God's grace? Dear God, help my husband. Help Sean. Lisa fell hard to the floor, blacking out. Mom. Footnote. Mana Devas. Mana comes from the proliterate societies of Africa, Oceania, Asia, and the Americas. The word describes the power of either angelic or demonic powers. The word divas is the word for demons according to the ancient Persian religion of Zoroastrianism. In this text alone, the combined words Mana Devas clearly says demonic powers. Excerpts from Sir Fairchild's journals. Day 37. As I sit here, trying to ignore both the bumpy ride and the idle chatter of those escorting me, I find myself having difficulty riding. However, despite these distractions, I'm reminded of the several basic assumptions and notations about mankind's first evidence of emerging civilizations, agriculture, plain and simple, agriculture. To support the generation of large communities and cities, the basic needs of life had to be met, food. In the area of Mesopotamia between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, the evidence of man's first fruits of labor was discovered. Irrigation and farming occurred in this area at a level to support the accumulation of a large populace. If my memory fails me not, the Sumerians were the first to develop irrigation in this area around 4000 BC. They drained marshes, created ditches, and made canals and dikes to water the developing farmlands. It was this effort that elevated a loose band of farmers into one of the earliest ancient civilizations. The Sumerians' first communities were temple towns where each one had a separate god guiding, protecting, and blessing their crops and lives. These towns later became city-states as their numbers grew. These governed developments were the first evidence of civilization. Let me see, 
Yes, the leader of each city-state was called an Incis and later a Lugal. So, let's put this all in order. A loose band of farmers developed the means of irrigation, leading to the creation of small farming towns. These towns led to cities and governmental rule, and such sites spiked the development of other crafts such as metalworking, pottery, and maybe riding. The Sumerians even developed the first known calendar based on the phases of the moon. Later, trade with distant civilizations and other Sumerian cities took place. But no matter what advances they made or prosperity they acquired, they continued to worship various gods. At home or at shrines, they worshiped gods in human form representing the sky, moon, sun, earth, water, and other natural forces. All catastrophes were attributed to not giving a particular god the proper worship it expected, while everything positive was seen as a particular god being pleased with their efforts. The Sumerians were later conquered by their neighbors, but it's fascinating to see how something as simple as farming and crop irrigation can bring people together and be the foundation, the building blocks, for a civilization. As I think about this more, I become more excited and find myself losing patience. We've just passed Maladia in Turkey and are making our way to Diyarbakir where we will take the Tigris River down to Iraq. I'm sure to find something along this river. Date 40 I forgot how much local travel affected the body and the ability to sleep soundly at night. How I long for my bed and my wife by my side. The sound of laughter from my children playing with each other and the clatter of pots and pans from the hired help preparing the evening meal. I miss the sound of people talking to each other while walking down the street and the occasional barking from some untrained mongrel. The rain. Oh, how could I forget one of England's greatest treasures? There are times I wish for a steady downpour and chilling air. I'm now shaking my head in remorse as images from my past flood my mind. Will I ever be able to see any of these again? I pray I do. You never know what you have until you lose it. Anyway, this journal isn't supposed to reflect on my sorry state, but on the facts of what I find on this journey. It's nighttime now, and I'm staring at the stars as I sit at my makeshift table, made out of a suitcase, several wooden boxes, and a single kerosene lamp. The rest of my crew usually leaves me alone, thinking I need some quiet time to dwell on intellectual things. I actually believe they find my mental state rather, well, depressing. Anyway, we're nearly three days away from the Tigris River. Once at the river, we'll hire a steamer to take us to some old ruins, possibly from either the Assyrians, Babylonians, or the capital city of Seleucia. Or maybe see Tesiphon built by the Parthian kings. Where's my first stop? I have no idea. The little I know, the less they suspect what I'm truly looking for. As far as they're concerned, I'm an overeducated, dim-witted professor trying to recapture or experience some kind of excitement before I'm physically unable to. The night is so beautiful, peaceful, and yet so simple. I can always turn back and forget the whole thing. Tell my family and peers I shortened the trip due to a change of heart. What could they say? This is my expedition. I could do whatever I want. As I sit here fantasizing about a quick return that I know won't happen, I consider the huge task before me. The Tigris River is about 1,180 miles long, and the Mesopotamian area that I'm visiting, enormous. All this is enough to keep someone busy for years. Fortunately, I don't have that time to sacrifice. Yes, the stars are beautiful. I'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. For now, I'm going to brew some Earl Grey and relax. Date 4-4 four four. 
I have some free time so I'm writing to update the journal. Some of my help are trying to negotiate a fair price for the service of a local steamer but aren't having much success because of the lack of color in my skin and my obvious accent. They obviously see an opportunity to take advantage of a foreigner and charge more money than normal. I don't care, give them what they want. I lament over the level of the poverty I see around me. It is far worse than the homeless I see back home. Asking for a little extra money to rent someone's boat isn't such a big deal when I look at the poor excuse for housing these unfortunate souls live in. Well, there's not much I can do, but I will definitely look into helping those less fortunate than us in other countries when I get back home. I think of Jean-Claude again as I see these people, a man void of any home and proper means of taking care of himself. Will I end up that way if I find what I fear am I fine? I have a strong feeling at this point. I can either turn back and resume my normal life or forge on under the unknown. Why? Why must I always doubt every step I take? I made a decision and by God, I will either live or die by it. Day 4-5 Riding on this poor excuse for a boat is a great task. The river is not overbearing, but the unpredictable movement of the operator causes my stomach to churn. I pray I keep my lunch down. Despite this, both my crew and I wonder what I'm looking for. What am I looking for? Ruins? Some evidence of ancient civilizations. I don't know. I just know when I see it I'll know. It has been nearly two hours on the river and my interpreter, Avahad, just told me the rest of the men were curious just how far down the Tigris were going to go. What can I do? Tell them the truth? Instead I tell them they must show some patience, they are being well paid, and it's an easy job so far. That made Avahad smile. The fact that it was easy money, of course. They probably think I'm an idiot or some kind of eccentric coot, wasting his money on the whims of some fantasy. Well, if ignorance is bliss, then let them swim in it. As I stare off in front of where we're going, I see nothing significant that would cause me to call for an investigation. Oh, I see ruins and sites already discovered by others, nothing new there. A little further down I see. Day 47 it has been two days since I wrote anything in this journal. The past several hours have been fantastic, simply fantastic, but I'm getting ahead of myself. When I last wrote, I saw excavations already being worked on by fellow archaeologists and historians, but further down the river, I saw a rather unusual mound. Well, it looked more like a hill. Fine, it is a hill, but it just sat there, a strange 200 by 200 foot mound of hard-pressed dirt. Every other archaeologist was too busy with his own thing to pay it any mind. I'm pretty sure if they spent the time to survey the land around them, they would have noticed it as easily as I did. My group banked close to the mound, as I heard muffled laughs from my hired hands. I'm pretty sure they said something in their language about my fabulous dung heap and me. I immediately retrieved permission to excavate from the on-site Iraqi field commissioner, or whatever he called himself. I wasn't really listening, and within minutes the site was mine, after paying a hefty fee of course. It wasn't long afterwards that other archaeologists, curious about my site, soon visited me. They told me of the excitement of finding evidence of ruins that may be linked to the Assyrians at about 700 BC. I tried to match their enthusiasm about the whole ordeal but fell short. My passion was to uncover a more profound mystery still alive today. In their own way, they bragged of my misfortune of claiming a site with no possible historical value. But I have to agree, what they uncovered was significant, 
a definite archaeologist dream come true. Then the words of Jean-Claude flooded my mind, and I remembered his journal, I had to be cautious. For one whole day we studied the mound, figuring how and where we should start. When excavating, it's very important to move slowly and carefully. Any wrong move can be devastating. It was during this time I lamented over what I should do. I believed Jean-Claude's words, and it made me wonder what would happen if I found what I fear might be uncovered. If I were to survive this time of searching, I would have to distance myself somehow from any possible harm. Dr. Van Dertel held claims to most of the excavation sites in this area and was forever visiting mine to see what possessed me in filing a claim with the Iraqi field commissioner. I caught him shaking his head several times and mumbling something about a waste of money. I'll never forget my first conversation with him. He talked only about himself and how he would be the most famous man to uncover historical sites in this region of the world. He went on and on about really nothing until he got to the point he really wanted to make, that the majority of other archaeologists have joined his obviously superior crew. All joining him would not just be noted for the small piece they originally claimed but would have a stake in all other findings. All after his name took precedence over everyone else, of course. I thanked him for his suggestion and excused myself as I strived to direct my people. The next day I arose with a different attitude. I knew what I had to do. I found Dr. Van Dertelt and agreed to his proposal, but under one condition. I wanted my name left out of any of his findings. At first he thought I was joking and wanted something more, but when I convinced him I was sincere he quickly accepted. Brought in his men with plans he prepared ahead of time and started excavating within the hour. I was amazed at how fast and efficient his workers were. Just before dusk, they totally unearthed a large structure. It is now I stand here amazed at what my eyes are seeing as I aspire to write everything down. I don't want to miss any details. It is though I am seeing Jean Claude's works manifested in this structure before my eyes. Every symbol and shape of this building matched his description. It's exactly 150 feet in length, 75 feet in width, and 15 feet high. However, there's one last thing I have to check, the roof. I have to see if the roof was similar to what Professor Rinaldo Bavante described in his journal. Date 48. The Eye of Ra, an enormous Eye of Ra. I stood there motionless for, oh, I don't know, until I realized what I had before me. It was as if I was standing where Jean-Claude Bonnet and Professor Rinaldo Bavante stood in the past. I was thrust back into time and revisited what they saw. But with the knowledge I have from their mistakes, I gathered my wits, realizing what I had to do, and gathered my crew. They thought I was totally out of my mind when I told them we were leaving. Excited about the unearthed building, they wanted to see more of it and what was inside. After threatening them with unemployment, they gathered up our things and loaded the boat. Dr. Van Dertel was beside himself trying to figure out why anyone would come all this way, devote so much time and money into finding a unique find, to leave without any good reason. I knew deep down inside he was calling me a fool or insane. Why would any sane archaeologist distance himself from such a finding? I wish I could have told him. I wish I could have told anyone, but I knew better. If what I learned taught me anything, this place was cursed, and an unimaginable misheppening was about to occur. As I stared at the huge excavations slowly disappearing from my sight, and as the boat moved down the Tigris, I can't help but to feel guilt. Have I doomed these men to their deaths? 
Couldn't I have at least warned them, or thrown some sort of caution, into their efforts in discovering the secrets of that building? No, of course not. If I exposed myself in any way, then I too would join their precarious fate. I will be haunted by this choice for the rest of my life, that I, having knowledge and foresight, choose to do nothing but to run, to save only my goals and aspirations, while neglecting the dreams of other men. I leave them behind to an uncertain future. I must move on, discover more, and fill this journal with as much of this hideous reality as possible. So far I've copied every symbol from the unearthed Assyrian building. I will strive to study it day and night until its meaning is discovered. P49. It has been one day since we left Dr. Van Dertelt and the excavations. My guide tells me we're days away from Mosul, Iraq. It is his hope to replenish our dwindling supplies. I detect a hint of anger in his voice as he leaves me to my writing. It is well-deserved since we left Van Dertelt without first fully stocking up from his vast supplies. Anyway, for the purpose of entering my thoughts into this journal, I now will try to recall what I know about the Assyrians. Assyria took its name from its chief city, Ashur on the Upper Tigris, lying north of Babylonia. The country was frequently invaded from the north, as well as from the south, making the Assyrians fierce fighters from their experience with constant warfare. From the Hittites, the Assyrians learned the use of iron and developed powerful weapons to build a tremendous military force. They also acquired horses from the Hittites and were the first to use them in war as cavalry instead of drawing chariots. Again, I'm reminded of the Hittites. They seem to have influenced many cultures during their time. The Assyrians seem to have adopted and perfected advances made by both the Egyptians and Hittites. The Assyrians produced little literature, but in great libraries, they preserved copies of Babylonian and Sumerian works. They worshipped the old Babylonian gods but gave their own god Ashur first place. However, around 600 BC the Assyrian Empire collapsed after continuous defeats from enemies that joined forces. Maybe there is some link between the Hittites, Egyptians, and Assyrians with the symbols I've copied. It's going to be a long trip to Mosul, as my crew seems to avoid being around me. Other than disgruntled help and undecipherable symbols, I have nothing else to report for now. Date 51 Mosul, Iraq, an adequate place to trade and find basic goods. Well, basic according to their standards. Anyway, it is with great discomfort my deepest fear has become a reality. It was my translator, Avahad, who told me of the unfortunate mishap at the excavation site. Word of mouth always seems to travel faster than documented events. Well, it seems as though late at night, on the day we left, a large band of raiders raided the excavation site killed everyone they could find, and destroyed everything they've worked so hard to discover. Avonhat exclaimed the gods must be smiling on us and bringing good fortune to our futures since we miss death. I, on the other hand, lament over the fact there are indeed eyes watching everywhere. My efforts may leave all of our lives in a precarious state. I believe Jean-Claude said, if you believe me, keep your thoughts to yourself. Never let anyone know, or it will cost you your life. They have eyes and ears everywhere, 